Good morning, good morning, good morning, kindred. My name is Reverend Chipo Johnson, and I am from Damascus International Fellowship. If you are new to Kindred, Kindred is a partnership between Damascus International Fellowship, Evangelical Chinese Church, and University Presbyterian Church. We invite you to join us today as we go through a journey, um, on a journey, through the book of Isaiah chapter 55. And so if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to verse 1, and then we will skip down to verses 8 through 9, and it reads as follows. And I'm reading from the Common English Bible. All who are thirsty, come to the water. Whoever has no money, come buy food and eat. Without money, at no cost, buy wine and milk. My plans are not your plans, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my plans than your plans. The word of the Lord is blessed. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the abundance of your presence and for the majesty of your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word is a living word that transforms our hearts and our minds, a word that convicts us, challenges us, and causes us to grow to higher heights so that we can be more like you. We ask, Lord God, that during this time that you would preach to me as I preach to your people and that you would draw us together as a kindred family to bring hope and uh, life to all those around us who see the work that you're doing in our midst. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For a few moments this morning, I will be preaching from a topic entitled A Counterintuitive Invitation. As human beings, we tend to order our lives in order to fit into a group. Even when we think we're not doing this, we actually are. And the Facebook group called For People Who Don't Like People is evidence of this. There's actually 30 people in the group who don't like other people. We begin to favor the group we belong to at all costs and overlook the wrongs of our group in order to maintain the idea that our group is the best simply because it welcomed us and because we fit in. So a group of researchers did a brief study where they gathered a group of people from varying walks of life, um, starting with those who said they hate math and can't stand it, don't like it, have never loved it, all the way to college professors who are mathematicians who live and breathe mathematics. And they gave everyone in this group two mathematical problems. Each of the problems had the same or identical solutions, but they had different scenarios. And this is what they found. They found that when the mathematical problem was related to a scenario that is non-political, for instance, the question was, what is the correlation between skin cream and elbow rash? Most of the people, regardless of their math level and math skill, were able to solve the problem correctly. But when the scenario in the math problem involved something like the correlation between gun policies and violence, the same people were unable to solve the problem correctly based on their political view about the topic and how their view related to the information presented in the numbers. Even mathematicians solved the problem incorrectly if the correct answer would have challenged their views. This strong desire to belong to a group has a way of shaping and biasing our decisions without our knowledge. So the question becomes, why do we make decisions in this way? It's pretty simple. It's because it's intuitive to us. 
Intuition is a form of knowledge that appears in the consciousness without awareness of the underlying mental processing of information. If you know anything about psychology, you'll know that cognitive behavioral therapists use a a form of therapy that helps the client understand their patterns, the patterns of thought that are in their mind, because patterns of thought are the things that influence our behavior. And it is these unconscious or subconscious patterns of thought that we often term intuition. For instance, you might say to somebody, "Mm, I just don't trust that guy. And you can't explain why. But if you dig down into your thoughts, you realize that it's because you've developed a prejudice against that individual because he reminds you of your ex-boyfriend's brother or something. And every time you used to ask your ex a question, his brother would defend his whereabouts, even though you knew that your ex was lying, which is why he's your ex. So intuition is not always what we think it is. It isn't always this gut feeling that's, that helps us to be able to know the right thing to do. Oftentimes, in, in, intuition is based on this foundation of knowledge that we don't even recognize is at play. And so how does this come into play in our lives when we're talking about groups and when we're talking about the idea of discussing difficult situations? As I mentioned before, the difficult situation was the political scenario, right? And so our political views will determine what we say is the end answer to a map solution that has a fixed answer that we've already figured out for a non-political situation. And so if you imagine you have a sports team, some of you in this I was about to say in this room, some of you watching right now (laughs) might like the Seahawks and others might favor another football team. I'm not really into sports, but I think I can give you this analogy because I think I understand the concept. So here's how it goes. If someone on your team, the team that you're watching on Sunday afternoon, makes a foul, I believe that's what you call it, makes a foul, correct me if I'm wrong. So if they make a foul, this is what you might do. You might say, "Mm -mm, the referee messed up and you'll start yelling at the TV, which is what I do. Or you might say that the opposing team is faking it or exaggerating it and they're holding their knee because they just want to get an opportunity to get a free shot. That's basketball. I change sports on you, but keep on tracking with me. Or you might say that, Our team did foul, but the reason why we fouled is because the other team made a foul first. And the other thing that you might do is you might just simply ignore the mistake altogether and say, no, a foul did not happen. Why? Because I admit that mistakes do happen, but they are never made by us. This way of defining ourselves and determining our sense of identity in relation to our group is one of the reasons why we find it difficult or counterintuitive to talk about the difficult and uncomfortable conversations. So the question becomes, well, what are the difficult and uncomfortable conversations that we avoid? We avoid anything that causes division. That is conversations that compel us to decide what is right and who is right. So any topic that can be divided along partisan political political lines, such as immigration, global warming, marriage and family, gun control, fuel uh, sources and healthcare, or any conversation about systemic injustice and race, conversations about race-related hate crimes and violence, and conversations about historical trauma are all off the table in our minds because we don't like to be challenged about what is right and who is right. 
But here's the problem. God doesn't invite us to avoid uncomfortable conversations. So if he doesn't invite us to avoid uncomfortable conversations, the question becomes, what does God invite us to? God invites us, his invitation to come and drink that we see in Isaiah chapter 55 might look on the surface like an invitation to come and relax and to rest in the comfort of God's presence. But it's actually an invitation to all who are thirsty. And it's an invitation for us to reclaim our true identity. God invites us to come so that we can be as he is. He says to us, be holy, be pure, be perfect, be faithful, and be righteous because that is who I am. And in your being, that will influence your doing. That means he is inviting us to allow the Holy Spirit to challenge every part of our identity that doesn't reflect God's character. It is from this place of being as he is that we are able to do righteousness and do justice just as God does. Doing justice and righteousness requires us to admit that we have no clue what we're doing. It requires us to let go of what we think is right in order to be able to embrace what God declares is right. And that's not an easy thing for us. Why? Because it goes back to what I said. We are so wired to, to say that our group is right simply because they said that we belong. And so we will support and cover up any mistakes that they made so that we don't have to address the difficult question of what if I am not right? What if I have done something wrong? We see this with the people of Israel in Isaiah chapter 44, where God asked this question in verses six through eight. He says to them, who is like me? God then goes on to give them a reminder of who he is. He says, I am the Lord. I am Israel's king and I am Israel's redeemer. I am the Lord of heavenly forces. I am the first, I am the last. And besides me, there is no other God. I am God who keeps my promises and honors my word. And you are my witnesses that there is no God besides me. All you have to do is look at yourself and remember everything that we've been through together. And if you can't remember everything, just remember this, I am your rock. In these verses, God draws their attention back to their history as the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the people whom God delivered from slavery in Egypt, the people whom God provided with water from a rock when they cried out to him in the middle of the wilderness. God uses the reminder of the history of his relationship with his people to invite them into the process of reconciliation. And this is important because true reconciliation starts and ends with God revealing that he is God. Because true reconciliation starts with recognizing that our sins against God impact other people. And so God says, recognize who I am. Recognize who I'm calling you to be. See how you have stepped out of line from the position that I originally placed you in. Reconcile yourself to me and then make amends for what you have done to one another. God invites the people of Israel to acknowledge the revelation of who he is by asking the question, who is like me? A question which should easily be answered with the words, absolutely no one. But to answer God's question in this way would mean admitting that what they are currently doing is wrong. 
The people of Israel are behaving like the children that we often see on TikTok videos who deny eating cupcakes, yet have crumbs and icing all over their faces. The people of Judea deny the truth of God's question by refusing to see that what they're doing doesn't actually make any sense. And so some of you might be asking, well, what is it that they're doing that God is talking about? Well, in chapter 44, God describes a scenario where a skilled blacksmith or a skilled carpenter takes some metal or some wood and they fashion it and they form it. The blacksmith keeps on working on this metal to form and fashion an idol, working long, uh, consistent hours without thinking about his own um, his own con- physical condition. God says that if this man did not drink water, he would probably even pass out. That's how long and how hard he's working to create this idol that he wants to worship. And the carpenter takes a piece of wood, chops down a tree, cuts the wood into several pieces and uses half of it to make fuel, which he uses to warm his house, cook his food and to bake his bread. But after eating, takes the remaining remaining piece of wood and carves it into an idol, which he then bows down to, prays to and says, save me for you are my God. God asked them, don't you see that this doesn't actually make sense that you're worshiping wood that you just roasted your meat on. And God is inviting them into a conversation where they get to ask the question, isn't this thing in my hand a lie? But because we refuse to engage with these difficult and uncomfortable conversations, the people of Israel refuse to answer and address the question. So again, God uses chapter 44 to point us back to Isaiah 55, when in 44, 21 and 22, he says, remember these things, Jacob, and return to me because I have redeemed you. So what is it that the people are being called to redeem? They are being called to remember, not called to redeem, called to remember. They're being called to remember the covenant that God made with them when he delivered them from Egypt. They're being called to remember Deuteronomy 28. Now, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 28, you know that it's a rich text that we often quote or try to take parts of when we're trying to encourage ourselves about how we are blessed when we come and blessed when we go. And so God uses this text to explain to them that the covenant is tied to our ability to listen. That is our ability to obey his commands and obey what he has said. And he says that when we listen that we will receive blessings. And he says that when you listen, you will receive the rain. When the rain comes, your crops will grow. When your crops will grow, your livestock will flourish. When your livestock flourishes, your children and your household will have enough to eat. When you have enough to eat, you'll have enough to be able to share with other nations. You will be a lender. You won't be a borrower. People will look at you and they'll know and recognize that God's hand is upon you, that he has blessed you because of all of this abundance that you have surrounding you. But when you don't listen, God says what'll happen is a chain reaction of events will occur 
occur that are meant and designed to catch your attention and cause you to turn back to me. But because of your stubbornness and because of the fact that you want to hold on to the idea that you're right, even in your wrongness, just so that you can hold on to this false identity that you have created, this is what will happen. When you don't listen, I will stop the rain. When it doesn't rain, your crops won't grow. When your crops don't grow, your livestock won't have anything to eat. When your livestock don't have anything to eat, they'll die. When they die, you won't have anything to eat. And if you are fortunate enough to hold on to a piece of your resources, then the enemies that surround you will come and they'll pillage it and they'll take what you have. And whatever the enemy doesn't steal, the locusts will destroy. And it'll get to a point where you are so hungry and so desperate that you will be convinced that you only have one solution to be able to get out of this problem and this predicament that you're in. You will be so hungry and so thirsty that you will eat in secret and deny that you're eating anything because you're so afraid that someone will ask for a bite to eat. As we look at the book of Deuteronomy chapter 20, or at least in chapter 28, we realize that this sets the framework for where we are in Isaiah, the, in, actually the entire book of Isaiah, because this covenant that God has made with the people of Israel is what led them into the exile, their failure to abide by their part of the covenant. And so God says to them, come and eat. He says that I am God who is faithful to my covenant. And he says this in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 through 11, where he says, my word, which comes from my mouth is as faithful as the rain and the snow. My word that comes from my mouth does not return to me empty. Instead, it does what I want and accomplishes what I intend. In the book of Isaiah, God is speaking to a people who know the covenant that was made to them in, in Deuteronomy. It is a covenant where God the deliverer from Egypt invites the nation of Israel to be his kingdom of priests and a holy nation. By recognizing that the words of Isaiah are being spoken to a covenant people, we set the tone for Isaiah chapter 55 as the priests, their role was to stand as mediators and intercessors, reconciling the nations around them to God. As God's holy nation, they were meant to be the place where God dwelled. While God gave them the city of Jerusalem as the place where his temple resided, it was God's intent that the people of Israel would know that they were his temple. And throughout the book of Isaiah, we see God's response to his people who have failed to live up to this identity. Isaiah 55 opens with the words, come to the water. And we see in Deuteronomy 30 that this invitation to come to the water happens to be an invitation to return to the Redeemer by remembering what God has done for you. Isaiah, Deuteronomy 33 says, is an invitation to return to God's covenant with all their heart and with all their soul. In Isaiah 55 verses two through three, God invites the people of Israel to listen carefully to him and to eat what is nourishing. He goes on to say, pay attention and come to me. Listen so you can live. The people are being called back to the conditions of the covenant. If we listen to Yahweh, they will enjoy the nourishing milk, which he promised to them. 
This invitation to listen in Isaiah 55 not only echoes the terms of Israel's covenant with God established in Deuteronomy, but it also echoes Isaiah's words in the opening chapter as God indicts the kingdom of Judea for their rebellion in Isaiah 1 verse 2. After detailing the extent of their sinfulness, God does that which is counterintuitive to us. He says, let us partner together to right these injustices which have been caused. As we reflect on the things that have taken place in the last year, civil and social unrest, racial violence, economic instability, physical and mental turmoil, all against the backdrop of an international pandemic, we as the people of Kindred are being extended the same invitation to come now and let us reason together. What exactly is it that makes this invitation counterintuitive? It is the fact that the one who caused the problem or who caused the offense is being invited to be part of the solution. They are being welcomed with the intent that their coming will lead others who have been wronged as well as others who have done wrong to the table. God reminds the people of Judea of the covenant that he made with David to remind them of their identity. When we forget who we are called to be, God in his mercy brings that identity to their remembrance. The kingdom of Judea, who may be struggling to see themselves as a holy nation and a royal priesthood, appointed to their forefather David, who served the Lord as priest and king. David, a man after God's own heart, was also a man who sinned against God, yet he was restored to his identity because he recognized his need for repentance. It is this David that God speaks of in Isaiah 53 when he says, Pay attention and come to me. Listen so you can live. Then I will make an unconditional covenant promise to you, just like the reliable covenantal promise I made to David. The people of Israel I invited back into their identity to be a witness to the nations, just as David was. In verse 5, God says, Look, you will summon nations you did not previously know. Nations that did not previously know you will run to you because the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he bestows honor on you. This invitation to return to God and to the identity that God had given to them is extended to all, regardless of what category they see themselves in. Whether they see themselves as wicked, sinful, faithful, unfaithful, righteous, unrighteous, of Judea or of Babylon or of both. There is no room for us versus them in God's invitation. All are invited to return to the Lord and he will show mercy to them and to their God, for he will freely forgive them. God's forgiveness is lavished freely on the repentant as quickly as it was poured out on David. God says, come, let us reason together. It is here that we see that the invitation to come is not just about eating. It is also here that we realize the invitation is counterintuitive because it focuses on the very conversation we try to steer clear of, and that is the conversation of reparations. Reverend Jennifer Harvey writes this. She says, a reparations paradigm assumes that unjust material conditions structure the relationship between perpetrators and victims. And as a result, it calls for bi-party participation in a process seeking justice. 
It insists that healing the relationship between perpetrators and victims requires restructuring the material conditions through which the parties relate to one another. That is repairing and redressing the specific conditions that caused and continue to cause the harm. The process of all these steps encompasses the uncomfortable conversation of reparations. Reparations is daunting and scary for all who are involved, not just for the perpetrator. Reparations is a difficult, unconventional, and counterintuitive process that does not have a simple one-size-fits-all resolution. But reparations is a fundamental part of God's justice. God's invitation to buy without money emphasizes the counterintuitive nature of God's redemption. Judea had cheated and oppressed the poor, the widowed, and the orphans. And yet God said to them, come, so that I may have mercy on you. By coming, those who respond to God's invitation are not merely being forgiven while their sins are ignored. Neither are they coming to be punished and brutalized in the way and manner that they victimized others. God invites them to confess and own the wrong that they have done. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see God calling those who claim to be his people to show justice by repairing the breach they have caused. Whether it is intentional or accidental, recognized in the moment or realized at a later date, the people of God are called to make restitution. Numbers chapter 5 verses 5 through 7 describes sin against anyone else as breaking faith with God. Too often when we read scriptures like 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, which says, But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything we've done. We dismiss the fact that our sin has impacted someone else's life. We think that confession is the end, but God makes it clear that confession is just the beginning. Going back to Numbers chapter 5, God says that after the person confesses, they should make payment to the injured party. We see this same principle again in Exodus chapter 21 and in Exodus chapter 22. And for those of us who think that the Old Testament is outdated, Jesus does us a favor by repeating it again in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24, where he says, make things right with your brother or your sister before you bring your gift to the altar. Make things right. Do righteousness and do justice. When God says in Isaiah 55 verse 6, seek the Lord when he can still be found, call him while he is yet near. He's not simply saying, call me so that I can make you prosperous, nor is he saying, call on me so I can quickly forgive you. And now that you have been forgiven, go and do whatever you like. Just don't get yourself into this much trouble again. The same God who says in Isaiah 55, 50, sorry, 55, 7, let the wicked abandon their ways and the sinful their schemes. Let them return to the Lord so that he may have mercy on them to our God because he is generous with forgiveness. That is the same God who says that the wicked will enjoy salvation when they do what? Turn from their sin and do what is just and right. Do righteousness and do justice. Throughout the book of Isaiah, God speaks of justice and righteousness together. 
to do justice and righteousness is part of returning to the Redeemer. The problem we face is not that we don't want to do justice and righteousness. The problem is that we have divorced the New Testament from the Old Testament. So when we see testimony about Zacchaeus giving half of his possessions to the poor and repaying those he has cheated four times as much as he stole, we dismiss it as something that happened just that one time not realizing or recognizing that Zacchaeus' response to Jesus was not unique or absurd. Realizing this opens the door for yet another difficult and uncomfortable conversation. It opens the door for the uncomfortable conversation about reparations. Reparations is not a bad word. It's a word that's been politicized which is why we don't like it. And because it has been politicized, it invokes so much discomfort and disdain because it challenges our views about the group and the place where we belong. Some of you may have your hand ready to turn this worship service off because you have concluded that politics has no room in the church. And you're right. Politics has no room in the church, but here's the thing. Reparations started as a God issue before it was branded as a political issue. The difficult and uncomfortable conversations are suspended within the process of reconciliation. We can't leave them out because God doesn't leave them out. We have already established that restitution is the way that we do justice and righteousness. And whether you call it reparations or restitution, it's still the same thing. It's justice and righteousness. And whether we call it reparations or restitution, it's still a difficult and uncomfortable conversation. This is why the people complained when they heard Ezekiel declaring that God would erase the sins of the wicked if they turned from their sins and did righteousness and justice. They said, my Lord's way doesn't measure up. In their eyes, God's way didn't measure up because it challenged the idea of what is right and who is right. God responds in Ezekiel by asking, is it not your ways that don't measure up? What we see is that this text echoes God's words in Isaiah 55 verses 8 through 9, where he says, my plans are not your plans and your ways nor are your ways my ways. Just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my plans than your plans. Notice that God says this right after he speaks to the wicked in verse seven. God knows that we find the conversation about reparations difficult and uncomfortable, but he also reminds us that it is a conversation that cannot be separated from his invitation to come to his feast. He says in both Isaiah chapter 1 verse 19 and Isaiah 55 too, that listening or agreeing and obeying is what gives us access to the best food in the land or, or the finest affair. I'm reminded of a time when the high school students at Damascus were given the opportunity to pick any meal that they wanted for their snack. There was only one condition. They could request anything and everything they wanted as long as they all agreed what they were asking for. As I presented this offer to the students, the students went back and forth debating about what they wanted for their snack. 
Finally, one of the students said, we figured it out, and they named what they wanted. And another student said, no, we can't do that because I don't like junk food. So they started throwing out ideas for healthy meals. And again, someone said, no, we can't do that because I don't like carrots. The cycle of debate and refusal repeated for several minutes until it was time for our gathering to end. In an effort to help the students understand what I was offering them, I gave them an example of something that I like because what I realized is they didn't hear what I was saying in the offer. I said that they could have anything and everything they wanted as long as they agreed on what they were asking for. And so I told them about a restaurant that I like that serves chickens, chicken and waffles. Chicken and waffles are totally awesome, especially if you put cheese in your waffle. Try it. You might like it. But I digress. And then I told the students that the menu at the restaurant has a whole bunch of side orders that you can add to your main meal. And you get to add two side orders. And the two side orders that I really enjoy with my chicken and waffles is mac and cheese and kale salad. I told them this because I was trying to let them know that there is abundance in what you can request. One of the students said, ah, I get it. She's trying to get us to order food from that restaurant. And I said, no, that's not what I'm offering you. Listen to the offer. You can have anything and everything you want as long as you agree on what you're asking for. The students asked me to leave the room because they said I was confusing them. And they told me they'd call me back when they had made their decision. After a few minutes, they called me back in and I said, what did you decide? And the spokesperson from the group said, we decided that we will just have water because that's the only thing we can all agree on. A small voice whispered, I don't want water. I want juice. And everyone roared in frustration. So what's the point of this story? The students assumed that I was trying to trick them or that my offer was somehow a hidden lesson. They overthought and overanalyzed my offer based on their past experiences with other people. One of them even said, no one ever offers a young person anything and everything in that kind of abundance. In their minds, Ms. Chipo's offer didn't measure up. They overcomplicated the offer and assumed that they could only request one item that they all agreed upon instead of hearing that I was offering them every item they wanted to eat as long as they used two very important words, the word we and the word and. All they had to say is we want, name an item and say and, and, and. And in that way, everyone at the table could get their heart's desire and have their needs met. God's invitation says, come to the water and buy food and milk and wine, regardless of what the need is of the people who are coming, whether they are victims or perpetrators. Everyone is invited to come and eat at God's table. God's invitation to buy without money emphasizes the counterintuitive nature of God's redemption. You see, in our minds, we think that the table is only for those who have been victimized and oppressed. 
And that means that the oppressors should stand in the sidelines. We think that they are the ones that God is talking about in Psalm 23, when it says the Lord has prepared a table for me in the presence of my enemies. We think that means that we're eating while those we call enemies are watching. But God says, no, I am inviting all of you because the understanding is that eating is not the end of reconciliation. Eating is just the beginning. It is when we come to the table to eat that we are admitting that we are all desperate. I want to take you back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. As I told you before, Israel was in their situation in exile because they had not listened to what God had covenanted with them. They had not obeyed him. They had not followed what he desired from them, which was to be like him and to do righteousness and to do justice. And as a result, their stubbornness and their refusal to admit that they could not save themselves, their refusal to admit that what they had in their hand was a lie, this idol that they were worshiping instead of worshiping God, this refusal to admit that maybe the ideas and standards of the group that they had formed didn't line up with what was really right. God said to them, you'll get to a point where you're so hungry and so desperate. And I said earlier that you will eat in secret because you're afraid that someone will ask for a bite. What I didn't tell you is that what you're eating is you're eating your own family members. You're eating your children. You're eating your siblings. You're eating because you think that the only way out is to, to attack each other. And when we come to the table of God, assuming that it is our duty and our responsibility to attack each other by measuring our pain and suffering against one another's pain and suffering, then what we end up doing is eating one another instead of seeing one another. When I say to you the word kindred, do you see African-Americans and Asian-Americans at odds with each other? Or do you see the works of solidarity that have been done in the past? And I'm not talking about the past of kindred. I'm talking about the past in the United States of America and in other countries around the world. Do you see those works of solidarity that have been done in the past and that are still being done today? Do you see the rehearsal and structures of oppression that cause us to oppose each other and vilify one another? Or do you see European Americans partnering with people of color? For too long, we have tried so hard to compare and separate our pain. We continue to weigh black slavery against the Jewish Holocaust, to measure anti-black racism against anti-Asian racism, to measure white poverty against poverty in communities of color. In measuring and weighing our pain against each other, we fail more often than not to recognize and see each other when we are in pain. Before the COVID-19 virus hit the neighborhood of Kirkland, how many of our white brothers and sisters saw the predicament of Chinese American families who were worried about their loved ones in China? How many of our white brothers and sisters knew and understood the pain of wanting to see and hold a loved one but we're limited to communicating with them via a screen or through a glass. 
before the recent rise in anti-Asian violence, how many of our Asian brothers and sisters understood the fear and trauma of wondering every single day of your life whether a loved one who walked out of the house would go to the store and would return home unharmed and alive? When a young Asian man was beaten in California, how many of our Asian brothers and sisters recognized the harm done by reporters who minimized the violence against young men when they include these words, by the way, he was a gang member and a felon. Before the race-related COVID-19 attacks, how many of our African-American brothers and sisters felt the uncomfortable sense of violation when asked to consider apologizing to Asian-American communities for the anti-Asian racism perpetrated against them by young African-American men? How many of us were quick to quote statistics to exonerate ourselves by pointing the finger at white men or by reminding those who would listen that racial hate crimes against African-Americans occur at a much higher rate than against any other racial group in America? When we measure and weigh our pain against each other's trauma, we fail more often than not to recognize and see each other as human. We become like the people of Israel, hungry to survive in real or imagined scarcity of protection, supplies, and resources. And we become like rivals within the same household, eating in secret for fear that someone will ask for a bite. When we measure and weigh our pain against each other's suffering, we fail to see that we are all part of the group that God calls all who are thirsty. we fail to see that we are being invited to God's table. We fail to see that we are all desperate and that it is the desperate people that God is calling to buy wine, milk, and water, and food without cost. This counterintuitive invitation to redemption and reconciliation through reparations is what produces a radical change in the environment and structure that once existed. The thorns and the nettles of injustice are replaced with the evergreens of justice. Isaiah 55, 13 says, Evergreens will grow in place of thorn bushes. Firs will grow in place of nettles. And why does God do this? Because he wants it to be a monument of the Lord, a permanent reminder that will remain, a reminder that he is God who invites us to his table, a reminder that reconciliation begins with recognizing who God is, a reminder that reconciliation does not stop at eating or stop at confession, a recognition that the invitation to sit at the table is an invitation to sit with those that we would never have thought to invite to the table. It is a recognition that God is calling all who are thirsty. God is calling all who are in kindred. We are kindred and we are all in this together. Amen.